All right, we'll turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. Hey, kids, go to your class. getting to the text we all of us want confidence in whatever product we are committing ourselves to if you ever watch a commercial or especially an infomercial you know that they are big on confidence money-back guarantee in bold letters across the screen If you're not completely satisfied within so many days, then send it back for a full refund. We want assurance, and they know that. They know that we want assurance. We like to have confidence that we're not being taken. As we come to the end of the letter of 1 John, we're going to be finishing up this week and next week. As we do that, we see again how John wants us also to have confidence confidence. And so, to begin this morning, I want to ask you, if you've been here throughout this series of 1 John, has your confidence increased? Maybe you have been struggling with your confidence in the grace of God, specifically in your security in Christ. And as we've looked together at John's words to the church, How do you receive them? How do you hear them? It's easy to read and focus primarily on his warnings without grasping the truth and strength of the gospel that supports those words. And so I want to encourage you again, hold fast to Christ. He never fails. Let's stand together and follow along. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12 of 1 John chapter 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we are people who are prone to take it for granted. So I pray for our moments together today that you would help us in that. That we would not take these words for granted. Prophet Isaiah wrote to us, Lord, 
This is the one on whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Father, help us. Help us to be a people who truly receive your word with humility and who tremble at the thought that God would speak to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. John, who is the author of this letter, 1 John, was an eyewitness of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And therefore, as, as people, we ought to lean in to whatever he says. We should press in as we read his words. And here in 1 John, and in this text specifically, he's saying that as Christians, we can be certain that Jesus is God's Son. Because God has given us several witnesses that testify to His divine nature. We can have hope, we can have assurance as His children. John tells us as Christians that we're not, we're not just crossing our fingers and hoping that the Bible is true. He's saying there's overwhelming evidence. There's testimony that should give us assurance of these things. The problem is never that there isn't enough evidence. The problem is always with the sinful and unbelieving heart. And in these verses, John seeks to give us that assurance. You can imagine sort of a, a courtroom scene as you look at the text. John's calling witnesses to the stand, all of which give proof of who Jesus is. God has not left us without evidence, without proof to give us assurance of who His Son is and what His Son has done. In verse 6, this is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The first witness to testify, according to John, is water. The water. This is he who came by water. Now that may sound strange. What does water have to do with giving evidence of who Jesus is? And what John is referring to is the baptism of Jesus. The water of baptism. This is a wonderful text for today. We have two people who are going to be getting baptized at the end of our service. And baptism is a display for us. It's a display of repentance from sin and what the Lord has done in a person's heart. It's this, this image of, of washing and of renewal, cleansing from sin. And when you see people baptized, they're saying, I believe. They're saying that they repent, but also that God has done something in them that their sins are washed away, that they've died to themselves and now live for Christ, and that they're raised to life in Him. And this whole text is a, a wonderful picture of that. And that's really the picture, right? Going into the water is this image of, of death and then coming up out of it like resurrection. John says you can know that Jesus is truly the Son of God because of his baptism. 
Now, we're going to see in a moment, John is purposefully pointing to the beginning and the end of Jesus' earthly ministry here. He wants them to know that no matter what the false teachers are saying, they can trust that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he really did come to earth. And Jesus' earthly ministry began publicly with the water of baptism. His baptism is so significant, we find it in all four of the gospel accounts. And in each text, we see this picture of the Trinity revealed as Jesus is anointed for public ministry. Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Matthew's account of the baptism says this, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Glorious picture of the Trinity. You have the Son of God in the water, and as he's baptized, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, the Scripture says. Not a dove, okay? Sometimes you see these pictures where a dove is coming down. The Holy Spirit is not a dove, not a bird, okay? It says, like a dove descending on Jesus, the Spirit of God comes upon him, and then the voice of God speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son. Beautiful picture of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit there in the anointing of Jesus and his ministry. And you might ask if Jesus is God in the flesh and sinless, and he was, why did he need to be baptized? And the answer is he didn't. He didn't belong in the water of baptism of repentance, and that's what John was calling for. John the Baptist was calling for repent and be baptized. He didn't belong in the water of baptism, but neither did he belong on a cross for sinners. And in both his baptism and the cross, Jesus identifies with the sinners that he came to save. He didn't need to be baptized. He's showing and identifying himself with you and with me. And those that do need to be baptized, those that do need to be cleansed of their sin. He's the Savior who took upon himself what belonged to us, what we deserved, humility and shame and suffering. Jesus came and willingly took that upon himself. He identified with sinners. The second witness that we see after the water is the blood. Just as water refers to Jesus' baptism, the blood refers to the cross on which Jesus died for the sins of all who would and have believed in him. The work of Jesus as Savior was initiated in his baptism and was finished by his bloody death on the cross. In fact, Jesus said from the cross in John 19, 30, it is finished. Daniel Aiken writes this, when Jesus Christ died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, 
his father again provided significant witnesses concerning the event. There was darkness across the land from noon until three o'clock. The curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. There was an earthquake. A number of Old Testament saints were raised and appeared to many as the first fruits of resurrection life for all who trust in Jesus. And these events led a hardened Roman centurion to exclaim, this man really was God's son. Jesus was and is the eternal son of God who entered this world and died as our propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God for the sins of all who would trust in him. That's what the word propitiation means. He satisfied God's wrath. His death was not an accident. It was divine, saving, substitutionary act for sinners. The cross announces that the king has come down to this earth and that through him God was reconciling the world to himself. It's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That God did through His Son what we could never do for ourselves. Suffered the punishment for our sins and in us believing transfers to us the righteousness that is Christ's. In other words, he treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived the way that you and I live, and he treats us in faith as if we have lived the way that Christ lived. It's unbelievable grace, incredible grace. John gives us a third witness, which is the Spirit. The Spirit testifies, he says, because the Spirit is the truth. God's Spirit given to us. When Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit, he spoke of him this way, just as John does here. John chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus says, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 15, 26, but when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, Jesus says. In John 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit of truth. The Spirit testifies to us the truth about Christ. You think of a courtroom, you think about how a witness swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. John's saying that these three things, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, do just that. They speak the truth to us, and nothing but the truth. They they speak the truth about Christ's coming, the Son of God in the flesh, to save us from our sins. The Spirit provides a consistent and continuous witness that Jesus is the Messiah and Savior. 
And John goes on in verse 7. For there are three that testify. The Old Testament law required that there be three witnesses, that the truth of a matter be established by two or three witnesses. We learned that in Deuteronomy 19. And John seems to be appealing to this requirement. We have enough witness, he's saying, that we can trust. He goes on in verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The three witnesses are the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And they represent the earthly ministry of Jesus, its beginning and conclusion, beginning at His baptism, concluding at His death, and the present work through the Spirit of God. These three witnesses agree, he says, in their testimony. They're all telling us the same thing, that Jesus is the Son of God who's come in the flesh to save from our sins. And we can trust that God came to us and that God came for us. Verse 9, if we receive The testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Certainly we we see from that and understand if, if, if two or three witnesses, earthly witnesses come to us, and because they agree we have confidence in what they are saying, then how much more should we trust the testimony of God? We have testimony concerning God's Son coming to this earth that is far greater than the testimony we receive from men. If we're willing to receive and believe man's testimony, how much more should we receive and believe God's testimony that He has given to us? It is God. His testimony is greater. Titus 1, 1 through 3 says this, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That's Paul writing to Titus. God who never lies. John is making it clear that God has spoken on this issue. Jesus is the divine Son of God who came in the flesh and died, and to refuse to believe this truth is to refuse to believe God. We have these witnesses, he says, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, but God the Father is the strongest witness of all. And we can trust his testimony that he has given to us. It is God's testimony that we received. He has promised and he never lies. He cannot lie. This testimony demands a response from each of us, all of us. We cannot be neutral, John is saying. We cannot be indifferent. We must respond somehow. We do respond somehow. He goes on in verse 10. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. If we believe God's testimony, we are his. If we don't believe, we're saying that God is a liar. To not believe that Jesus is the Son of God is to not believe God and to make him a liar, John says, because you have not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. Charles Spurgeon said this, God is to be believed if all men contradict him. Let God be true and every man a liar. One word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men, whether they be philosophers of today or sages of antiquity. God's word is against them all, for he knows infallibly. Of his own son, he knows as none else can. Of our condition before him, he knows. Of the way to pardon us, he knows. There's nothing in God that could lead him to err or make a mistake, and it were blasphemy to suppose that he would mislead us. It were an insult to him, such as we may not venture to perpetrate for a moment, to suppose that he would willfully mislead his poor creatures by a proclamation of mercy which meant nothing or by presenting to them a Christ who could not redeem them. The gospel with God for its witness cannot be false. Whatever may be the witness against it, the witness of God is greater. We must believe the witness of God. John 5, 37, Jesus says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. John wants us to know that there is no way to be neutral. God has spoken. We either trust him and believe or else we are lost. Indifference is a decision. He's tying together our outward confession of Jesus as the Son of God and the inner witness that we have now with the Spirit. What we confess with our mouths, God makes real in our hearts. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, such a great passage in receiving the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one believes and is saved. Is that you? Do you believe the testimony of God concerning his son? Have you confessed? Are you living according to that truth? John doesn't point us back to a prior experience that we might have had. He wants us to look right now at the present testimony and witness of God in our lives. Who are you believing today? Where is your hope and confidence today, right this moment? Verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
eternal life. John mentions the Son seven times in verses 9 through 13, and life five times in verses 11 through 13. Life. We think of eternal life as never-ending life, and that is true. But there's more to it than that. Having Jesus, believing in Him as the Son of God, means having eternal life, that it's God's gift to us now. We have life in the Son of God. John says that to have the Son is to have life. James Boyce writes, to have eternal life is not merely unending life. It is the very life of God. What we are promised in Christ is a participation in the life of the one who bears his testimony. John is saying that you can know that you have eternal life when you know that you have the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. You have eternal life now. Whoever has the Son has life, has eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have eternal life. John makes it clear that there is only one way to have eternal life. Faith in the crucified Son of God. He's very exclusive. We don't like that, but it's true. There is only one way. Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. So I ask you today, have you received him? Have you trusted in him? Do you know today that you have life in Christ. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together, the bread and the cup. I want to read again that quote from James Boyce. He says this, To have eternal life is not merely unending life. It is the very life of God. What we are promised in Christ is a participation in the life of the one who bears this testimony. Think of that. Participation in the life of Christ for all who believe. Participation in the life of Christ. That's what Paul assures us as well. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that we have a taste of that. We experience that participation each and every time we take the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, it says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And that word that we have for participation here, that word is the same word that's translated fellowship in Acts chapter 2, where it says the, the apostles or the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer, to fellowship. And Paul's saying here that each and every time we take the bread and take the cup, we have a unique participation 
with Christ, that he's actually present here with us in this. That we're experiencing now that participation with Christ that is ours forever and ever. And so as we sing in a moment and as the bread and the cup are passed, I would encourage you to consider the weight of everything that we've talked about from this text. Paul goes on in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians and and talks about taking the Lord's Supper and and taking it in a worthy manner and and avoiding taking it in an unworthy manner. And I want to encourage you, and I want this to be encouragement, because I really do believe everything that I've said this morning. I really do believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to give life and that he did what you could never do, that there's nothing you could possibly do to pay for your sins, to make yourself holy and righteous enough to deserve heaven, to deserve to get to be with God forever. There's nothing I could do for myself. There's nothing I could do for you. There's nothing you could do for yourself to earn that. But Jesus came willingly to do it for you as a perfect and holy sacrifice. And so I want to encourage you, if you, don't, if you don't know him, then consider him and partake of him today. As the bread and the cup are passed, those are just symbols. They're just symbols that remind us of what God has already done for us. And Paul says every time we do that, every time we take the bread and the cup, we're making a proclamation. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so for those who don't believe in him yet, those who don't trust in him, then if we're honest, you wouldn't even want to proclaim that if you don't believe that. And so what I would encourage for you is, as the bread and the cup pass, just let them go by. And instead, partake of Jesus today. Trust in Jesus today. If you're here and you know him, as the bread and cup pass, take them, hold them. We'll take them together in a few moments as we proclaim his death and, and look forward to his coming and know that we have life in him because of what he's accomplished. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for your grace. You are trustworthy. You are trustworthy. And we thank you for the evidence that you've given us that you love us. You have proven your love for us and that while we were still sinners, unbelieving against you in every way, Christ died for us. And we thank you for that. We praise you for your grace that we do not deserve. We don't deserve your love, Lord. We don't deserve your grace, but you're so kind and merciful. So we pray for your help in these moments. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't hope in taking bread and drinking from a cup, Lord, that they wouldn't hope in those things, but that they would hope in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is one way through Christ, faith and trust in Christ who came and died for our sins and was raised to life and is coming again. We pray that you would give them faith to trust and to cling to you today in Christ's name. Amen.